Well, good morning, everyone. When Gordon suggested that my first sermon here was to be on Revelation, I wasn't sure if it was a baptism of fire or a baptism of fire and brimstone. But as this is my first sermon, I'll try not to do too much of the brimstone. Because when you know, as I'm sure most of you do know, what comes later in Revelation, the first few chapters can seem a little bit tame and gentle, but they're actually still quite hard-hitting. And the letter to Sardis is like that. The question, or maybe I should say the challenge being thrown down in the letter to Sardis is, why do you come to church? Which is innocent enough. But if I give it some emphasis, it takes on a new aspect. Why do you come to church? That's a question being put to every one of us, myself and Gordon included, in the letter to Sardis. It is a personal question. It is a question that we should ask ourselves from time to time. It ought to be part of our periodic spiritual health check. We go, or at least we should go, to the dentist every few months for a checkup on our teeth. And so we should also do a spiritual checkup every few months. The city of Sardis was capital of the province of Lydia. It's now in ruins. It was about 50 miles west of Izmir in modern-day Turkey. It had been a very wealthy city. Its last king was Croesus, famed for his great wealth. Even today, the expression, rich as Croesus, is understood, if not widely used, to refer to fabulous wealth. And the city itself was in a very strong military position. It sat at the top of a cliff with commanding views over the plains around it, including the Persian Royal Road. It could be approached only by one road, which came up steeply. The effect of this was that the Sardians needed to spend very little on defense. They didn't need a big army. And if you remember the story of Nehemiah rebuilding the temple, He says that the laborers carried their load in one hand and a sword in the other. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. And can you imagine trying to carry a load of bricks or a shovel full of cement with one hand? You'd probably have dropped the pile of bricks or whatever. It might have been necessary for Nehemiah, but it was not efficient. Half of his resources were devoted to military defense. And Sardis didn't have these problems. Its people could concentrate on making money. And they could concentrate on their leisure, on culture, and on the finer things in life. And the trouble is that they grew complacent. Four times Sardis fell. Now, is that careless? And worse, on at least two of these occasions, the cause was the same. In their complacency, They hadn't posted watchmen at night. 
and the enemy had climbed to the city under cover of darkness. They didn't learn from their mistakes. Now, that is complacency, or arrogance, or stupidity, or a mix of all of these. And then, in the year 17, Sardis was destroyed by an earthquake. But even then, the Sardians weren't shaken out of their complacency. For the Roman emperor Tiberius donated a huge sum towards their rebuilding. So while the event was traumatic, it didn't, they didn't suffer terrible financial hardship as a result. They still had it easy. So when John wrote this letter to Sardis, it was a well-off and a rather comfortable place. And certainly, its best days were behind it. But it was still a good place to live. In each of the seven letters to the seven churches that open Revelation, Jesus describes himself in slightly different terms. He tells the Sardians that he is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Seven, of course, being symbolic of completeness, of perfection. Here, Jesus is really laying it on the line. He is not content with saying that he has God's spirit. Rather, he has the seven spirits of God. He reflects God's spirit perfectly, completely. But not only is Jesus perfect in God's spirit, he also has the seven stars. The stars represent the churches, so the seven stars means the complete or the whole church. Here Jesus is reminding the Sardians that he is the head of the church. It is the church of Jesus, not the church of Sardis. In this introduction, Jesus describes his own perfection and so lets the Sardians know the standard to which they should aspire. Jesus sees into our hearts. Jesus sees the pain behind our smiles. Jesus knows the motives of our actions. And he didn't like what he saw in Sardis. So he told John to write to that church, I know that you have the reputation of being alive, even though you are dead. That must have been a dreadful thing to hear. The church would have been gathered to have the letter read out to them. There might have been a sense of expectation, an anticipation of some new delight. In their complacency, they were maybe looking for compliments, perhaps expecting praise for something they'd done. They may have felt a little smug, ready to pat each other on the back. I know that you have the reputation of being alive, even though you are dead. That would have shaken them. In the New Testament, death is often equated with sin. Paul famously told the Romans that the wages of sin is death. I don't know if you remember seeing that on the placards of street evangelists. I was never quite sure of the grammar in that sentence, but the meaning is clear enough. Jesus is quoted in John's gospel telling the Pharisees that they will die in their sins if they do not believe that Jesus is God's son. And Sardis was a good-going church. It was busy, it was lively, it had lots going on. 
it had the reputation of being alive, so it was an attractive place to go. The church, like the city itself, was a good place to be. We are given the impression that the church was active with different meetings, groups, activities, and so on going on. There was a buzz about the place. It was like a good social club, a place to meet friends and to enjoy some good company. It was a place to go and to be seen. And there is, of course, nothing wrong with being a good-going church. Indeed, it is good to be attractive, to encourage more people to come. The concern is one of motive. What do you think of the society in which we live? What do you think of life in East Kilbride, in Lanarkshire, in Scotland? Do you see any parallels with the position of the people in Sardis? Do you feel wealthy? Is our society wealthy? Do you enjoy a good standard standard of living, or do you struggle to pay for the basics? Now, each of us will have different answers to those questions. And indeed, what one person regards as the basics, others might regard as an utter luxury. I remember a few years ago, there was a court case in England when someone tried to get the right to fly on holiday, defined as a basic human right. The court disagreed, but it illustrates the different viewpoints and different positions that we all have. And that's why the question is personal as much as it is corporate. It's what do you think of our society? Do you think that we're complacent? Do we have an easy life? Do we have time and money for life's little luxuries? Maybe worse, are we as a society arrogant? Do we think it couldn't happen to us? Or do we assume there will be someone there to help us out if we get into difficulties? Now, if I was to come round and ask each of you those questions, I'm sure I'd get a range of answers. And they depend on our personal viewpoint and our personal stance. I personally think that we as a society are a bit complacent. Now, that's just my opinion, and you're free to disagree with me. But I look at the number of homeless people in our streets and think, something is wrong here. I cannot believe that sleeping rough through a Scottish winter is a lifestyle choice that anyone would choose to make. But do we, as a society, do all we can to help the homeless, or do we walk by thinking, I'm glad it isn't me, or that could never happen to me? Have you ever heard the modern expression, we're all three paychecks away from homelessness? I picked homelessness as an illustration because poverty is one of the recurrent themes of the Old Testament and indeed of the whole Bible. The care of the poor, the downtrodden, the disadvantaged runs through the Old Testament and would have been familiar to the people in New Testament times in places like Sardis. In Leviticus, the Jews were told, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. Deuteronomy has, if you are harvesting your field and forget a sheaf there, do not go back to get it. It is to be left for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Notice the promise of God's blessing there. 
it is absolutely clear what God wants done. In the story of Ruth, Boaz went even further and actually told his workers to drop some of the harvest so that the foreign widow, Ruth, could pick it up. And of course, we read in Isaiah earlier that God was fed up with the fasting, with the the sham religious rituals. What he really wants is an end to oppression and injustice. God didn't want the religious rituals if the Israelites didn't mean it. We're back to motive. He wanted the food to be shared with the hungry. He wanted the clothes to be given to the naked. He wanted doors to be opened to the homeless. And that might remind you of Jesus' words in Matthew. I was hungry and you fed me, thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you received me in your homes, naked and you clothed me. And challenged by the Pharisees, Jesus summarized this as Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, I don't know what problem Jesus really saw in Sardis, but I have a feeling that the people of Sardis were maybe just a bit too comfortable with their own luxuries and leisure pursuits. I have a feeling that they'd forgotten the have-nots of their time. Maybe they had forgotten to feed the hungry. Maybe they had forgotten to clothe the naked. Were their doors locked against the homeless? Did they love their neighbors? And I have to wonder if we are in some ways like the Sardians. It does worry me on a personal level. And that is why I said at the start that we need to examine our own hearts, our own motives. For Jesus saw that in Sardis, some people's motives were wrong. Not everybody. For he goes on to say, wake up, strengthen what you have before it dies completely. The situation was not irredeemable. It it wasn't hopeless. He adds, for I find that what you have done is not yet perfect in the sight of God. Notice that word, yet. Jesus has an expectation that the Sardians will yet strive for perfection in God's sight. They weren't bad people. They were maybe just a bit self-obsessed, maybe misguided. That is a danger in any church, and it's also the danger in self-reliance. Churches don't usually have bad people in them, and society as a whole isn't bad. Jesus told the Pharisees they would die in their sins, but actually the Pharisees weren't bad either. They were trying to do what God wanted them to do. They just didn't understand what that was. They tried to do the right thing. The old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, might have been written for the Pharisees. And it was so simple. All they had to do was to accept Jesus as the promised Messiah that they were waiting for. In our modern society, many people say, I'm a good person, I help other people, I look after my elderly neighbor, so I'm all right. But they don't say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, please forgive me. It's also simple, yet so many people don't get it. I'll bet it was the same in Sardis. Verses 4 and 5 that we read do recognize some definitely good people in Sardis. 
some people who are worthy to walk with Jesus, people who have confessed their sins and asked Jesus forgiveness. These are people whose names will not be erased from the book of life. These are people whom Jesus will name before God. Now, there is a promise. Jesus will personally introduce them to God. Father, I would like you to meet my friend here who loved me and followed me, whose sins I have forgiven. Can you imagine if you were that friend? Wow! And this is really quite like what we read in Isaiah. The criticism in Isaiah's case, specifically mentioning oppression and injustice, is followed immediately by God's promise of redemption and protection. I started out by saying that each of us should periodically carry out our own personal spiritual health check. I compared it somewhat to going to the dentist every few months. Now, I don't mean to offend any dentists here today, but a few of us actually look forward to our regular checkups. But in truth, if we listen to the dentist's advice, clean our teeth regularly, don't eat too many sweets, the checkup is usually no more than a quick clean and polish. And so it is with our spiritual health check. If we pray regularly, if we confess our sins, if we seek forgiveness, if we listen to God's advice, and if we read our Bibles, then our spiritual health check will be nothing to worry about. It's just a quick clean and polish, and the shine from it will light up other people here in the church and in the wider world with our personal glow, our spiritual Colgate ring of confidence, if you remember that. We can come to church for all of the right reasons. We can come to church with our hearts in the right place, and we can come to church with Jesus walking at our side. And we can go from church, radiating the light of God, shining on everyone we meet. In this letter, Jesus gets John to warn the people to look into their hearts. And this is the best news for all of us. Jesus had not given up on the church in Sardis, and Jesus does not give up on us. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves every one of us. He loves you, and he loves me. Jesus wants to be able to declare to God that we all belong to him, and Jesus wants every single one of us to join him in the new Jerusalem that comes at the end of Revelation. Jesus loves us all, and that is good news. Amen.